our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be able to come together like this as your adopted children and to hear your message for us. We thank you for all your provisions, this church, this assembly, our pastor, our faithful students and listeners and children. We're just very grateful for this opportunity to uh, gather together and be a light on a hill here, spreading your word and bringing it out to lost and dying world. Father, we're especially grateful, of course, for your son, Jesus Christ, who made this all possible and in whose name we unite. And we ask that you help us unite in heart and mind and spirit around your word tonight. We ask that your spirit teach us the particular things you have for us tonight that you want us to hear and understand. And Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We ask these things in the name of our precious Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Impartially sticking to the truth. This is kind of a little summary of the last couple lessons. And um, as per our, our title tonight, let's start this way. This, you know, theme or this topic here on the board is what the Lord Jesus did in his entire life on earth, if you think about it. And he did, did it all with grace. But his entire life, he stuck to the truth. He was graceful. He was even elegant in everything he did, to borrow from one of Pastor's recent blogs. But yet, all the while, he never compromised the truth. He never lied isn't even the right word, but he never even tried to soften the truth with people. Out of love, he told them the absolute truth in a loving way. So let that be our example as we talk. Uh, we've talked a lot lately about, you know, wrongly softening the truth of the word in some way or softening the gospel message. Um, We'll see what the Spirit brings out again tonight. But just think about the fact that Jesus never compromised the truth, ever. He never tiptoed around the truth. Whether it was with humble sinners or even the arrogant Pharisees, he always told the truth. And also, if you think about it, he never apologized for it. He's like, this is how it is. This is my Father's plan. I hope you humble yourself and embrace it, in not so many words. So on the board, with grace, our Lord Jesus shared the unadulterated truth. So men would not deceive themselves, but instead come to God's salvation. The implication there is if, if you don't share the whole truth, you might lead someone into some form of deception about salvation even. So following his example, we need to impartially stick to the truth of the word for the benefit of our own soul first and for the benefit of other people. So, for example, for our own benefit, we've been warned recently to be guarded 
against extra biblical texts. And there's a lot of great books out there. There's more and more, right? They just keep coming up, coming out. All kinds of books, all kinds of good books, um, a lot of very good teachings that have the Word of God, you know, as the theme. A lot can happen in our souls when we commit to reading extra-biblical texts on a regular basis, especially if they're given priority over the Word of God. That's been the main message uh, regarding these texts. They might be good. They might have something to offer. um, But, see, the extra-biblical texts, they're out here, right? They're meant to pad what you already know about the Word of God or what you're learning from the Word of God. They're not meant to be in the center. That makes sense. And that's what the Spirit's warning us over. He's like, are you relying on these extra-biblical texts because they're well-written and they're easy to read and you know, understand and you, know, you like the language of the author? Are you relying on that for your soul, for your peace that only the Word of God is supposed to give you? So it's one thing if it pads what you are learning constantly from the Word yourself. So on the board, just think about this. Guarding your soul. If you're reading a spiritual book, let's call it, and you're not reading the Word of God first as your first priority, you can get swayed to give too much emphasis to that book or topic, or even to a perverted perspective, possibly. Just think about it. That's the problem. It's like not reading the manual. You know, if you were in any field of business, any type of trade or whatever, there's probably, you know, a master manual that they go to. If you don't look in the manual and check everything against the manual, you're going to mess up the job. You're going to be getting advice from people. You're going to be reading some guy's little booklet that's shortcuts, right? Cliff notes to, you know, plumbing. And then, boom, that's not good. So you got to go to the manual as, as the source. And, of course, it's even more so with the Word of God. So, again, it's really about guarding our souls. The, the Spirit's telling us, guard your soul more than you thought you maybe should. Be more protective of it. If you're reading a spiritual book and you're not reading the Word of God first as your first priority, you can get swayed to give too much emphasis to that book or topic or even to a perverted perspective, possibly. Our only protection from subtle deceptions is eating the Word of God daily. You see, these, again, how Satan works. These types of deceptions that might sneak in are subtle. They're not, you know, Satan's not being obvious about it. He's using things that sound good, that look good, that seem like truth, and may have truth in them. But he'll use those things to sneak the lies in, right? That's how he operates. So... The only protection we have from those subtle deceptions, the only hope we have of recognizing subtle deceptions is the Word of God, eating the Word of God every day. Then our guard is up, you know, where it's fresh in our our souls. And then when we read something in a certain book, we'll be like, hey, (laughs) I just read something in Romans. That's, That's not a good statement I just read. But if you didn't just read something in Romans, you'll breeze right over it. Maybe you'll even embrace a lie. And with something like a devotional, if it emphasizes all the easy principles 
without even mentioning the challenging principles in the word? Is it possible you might become lopsided in your soul? How can that be good? Do you want to wake up one day and find yourself lopsided in your soul? And even worse, not even know it? That you're being lopsided? Biased, whatever you might want to call it. So guard against it now up front is what the Spirit's saying. Guard against it now up front by doing your due diligence, by, you know, attaining your own convictions, by seeing it yourself in the Word. And then you can read some extra things to pad it, maybe, maybe see what somebody says about a certain topic. But you're doing it because you want to, you're matching it against the Word of God. Hope that makes sense. So devotionals also, if you think about it, are actually designed to tickle our ears. They're written to be pleasing to the ear, aren't they? Aren't they, aren't they written to all be, um, mostly be really simple, positive statements and hopefully scripture? But you might need to hear the strong truth about something and you're not reading your Bible such as like the call to repentance. So in a subtle way, if we only read devotionals, we're being selfish. We're actually pleasing self. I want to tickle my ears. I don't want to read that challenging stuff Jesus said in the Gospels. Let me just tickle my ears for five minutes and I'm good. You know, I feel better. Great. Then, uh, then you walk around lopsided all day. So it's just a perspective to think about and to thank the Spirit for. You know, because honestly, when it first came up, you know, I didn't, I didn't see the whole picture or the whole thing the Spirit was getting to, but now it's growing. You know, what's the point? The point is, without the Word of God every day as your priority, there's deception that can sneak in the back door. On the board, so we're talking about what's best for our souls. Best. There's good and there's best, right? And obviously the Word of God is the best. The very best thing we can do is read the Word for ourselves because we can take in the whole story of God in context, not lopsided, and because we're reading the only supernatural book in human history. Let's not forget. And I think we do. I think we get familiar. We forget that we're reading a supernatural book and that these things that we read, you know, you start to take for granted sometimes. You get too familiar with certain verses, etc. This is the inspired word of God. Why would we read anything else? If you really believe that, why would you read anything else? And I'm not saying you can't or you totally shouldn't. I'm saying, why would you pick up something up first if this is actually inspired by God? It makes no sense. But it's back to faith. Another thing to think about is why read an impersonation when you can read the real thing? Again, nothing wrong with padding the Word of God, checking, you know, seeing what different maybe commentators think about a certain passage. You want to get some different perspectives. But you see, you're, you're starting with the passage, and then you're looking to see some uh, different perspectives. So we're not saying all spiritual books are ungodly, although some are. We're saying they must have their proper place, and that is a clear second place to our reading of the Word itself. 
was thinking about like running a marathon, right? Uh, Michelle's doing a half on Saturday in Brian, I think, right? Pray for them. But it's like if you see someone running a marathon and some guy wins by like two hours. I know, that's an exaggeration, Leo. <laughs> but that's how the Word of God is compared to the second book and the third book. It's a clear second place for all the other books. Not even close. This should be our attitude of our heart. God's saying, what's your, what's your you know, priority? Are you intense about the Word? Uh, what did James say? Are you um, intently, intently looking in the mirror? of the word? How do you read your Bible? How do you look at the Bible? So anyway, everything else has second place. So warning from the warning from the Spirit is that even good books, quote-unquote, written using the name of Jesus, can be designed by the kingdom of darkness to veer us off, off course. That's all Satan wants to do. Just get us off course a little bit. So we're going in that direction instead of that direction. And then guess what? The further you go out, the further you end up from the point you want to be at. All in the name of something good. So we mustn't be naive to Satan's schemes, and that's one of them. The only way extra-biblical texts can stay in check in your soul is by you taking in the Word every day. Because then the Word works as an anchor in your soul, as it's designed to be, as He's designed to be. Jesus is the Word, right? So, for an example of, uh, you know, avoiding being lopsided, one of the challenging things we're told in Holy Scripture is that we're called to live in humility, which means living for others. This has been quite an emphasis lately. We saw on Sunday some wonderful passages in Romans that give us the plain truth on how obedience to God's ways can set us free and give us peace. But you have to read the plain truth. And it includes positive statements and negative statements, right? It includes do's and do nots, not just do's, not just no commands, like some books might give us. So turn in your Bibles again to Romans 13, 8. Romans 13, 8. <clears throat> and not everyone wants to hear this. Be humble. <laughs> Live in humility. Put others ahead of you. A lot of Christians don't want to hear that. They want to hear, what's God going to bless me with? You know, I want more blessing. Jesus said, if I ask, he'll give it to me. And that's kind of why they're in it. But Romans 13, 8, it gives us more of a whole picture. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You see the encouragement there? And you see the different pictures that are painted by these scriptures? And we get more of a whole picture? So the Word of God plainly, honestly tells us the way to think and live. And these are the ways to freedom in this life. It's the only way. He is the way. Once again, this is why we desperately need to read the Word of God in context every day. I don't care if it's five minutes. Some mornings I get up, it's five minutes. I read one chapter, but I enjoy that chapter. In other words, I don't, I don't care that I only did one chapter. I enjoy that chapter. I'm just sharing with you if it helps. But literally five minutes some mornings. But you know what? It's the Word of God. It's supernatural, and the Spirit can use it when we humble ourselves before Him. So there should be some kind of a desperate need in your soul and awareness that you are desperate without the Word. We need these type of clear instructions that we just read to clear our heads of the garbage from the flesh and the world. And as came out on Sunday, we should see it as taking our medicine for the day. So more on the call to live in humility. Let's go back to Romans 15, verse 1. We saw this on Sunday also. Romans 15, 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Notice the perseverance and the encouragement comes from the scriptures. And therefore we have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So from Sunday, this also came out a little different perspective. When we take the time to live for others, there's no more time to worry about living for self. Thank God. Some days, if you are occupied with others or really, really give yourself to help somebody else, you literally run out of time. And you come home and you have joy from, from what you're able to help somebody with and you go right to bed. You're exhausted. You get good sleep. And you don't, you don't have time to sit up for hours being like, oh, what should I do about my life? Or should I obsess more about this problem? No, you don't have time. Awesome. That's the good thing about working hard. You get a good exhaustion to sleep well and... God's in the background doing everything because you're doing his will. So just think about it. Um, when we take the time, if we're willing to take the time to live for others, there's no more time to worry about living for self. Thank God. When we live for others, we are actually having faith that God will take care of ourselves, our own lives. And that's a beautiful scene in the invisible realm. As God covers your back and even provides for you while you enjoy helping others or taking care of others. 
That's how it was like designed to be, meant to be. Love one another, serve one another, and God's filling your vat behind you while you're not even home. That's how it's meant to be. But it takes faith. And guess what? You do that thing, you're going to be really happy. You're going to see, you're going to be able to help people, which brings you joy in the end. And you're going to see God performing on your behalf with no credit to yourself. So it's a great design by the Lord, obviously. That's how life is meant to be. And it's the only path to enjoying true freedom in this life. If you want to continue to live for yourself, there will be repercussions. It's called misery and dead ends. Preoccupation with self and one's own needs is certainly the way to misery. You have to give your needs to God. You might even be low on finances and be like, where's the next check coming from? But you literally have to give your needs and worries to God and and go do what you think he wants you to do. And just watch how life works out. And remember, it's not about your wants, it's about your needs. Don't mistake the two, but if you want misery, focus on your own needs. More and more and more. On the board, a pastor called it dedication to self. Selfishness breeds malcontent. God did not regenerate believers in order to live a better life for self. Did he? Did he make you born again so you could have a better life for self? Do you really think that's what it's all about? Or did he make you born again to save you from yourself and then spread the good news? He gave us new life in Christ to live as Christ did for others in humility. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Turn again to Galatians 5, 13. And if you've been into the Word of God for any amount of time, you know the joy it can be to live for others. We don't always do it, but when we do it, we get a glimpse of the type of happiness and peace and joy He wants us to experience. And that's how God built us to be happy when we do it His way, when we put others ahead of self. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's where fulfillment comes from in this life. Purpose. It's when we actually do the Word of God, we're set free from ourselves and it can have the joy of the Spirit. On the board, we might call it a daily rescue because it is a daily quest. There's no way around that. Every day is a new day. Only relying upon and obeying the Word and the Spirit can save us from self-induced misery. When we live in the Word, when we live for others, we're rescued from ourselves. That's how God designed life, to function healthy and, you know, joyously. As Pastor also said on Sunday, find something to do. Find something to do. You know, some of us, and I do this too sometimes, just sit around being like, okay, God, bring me something to do. 
right? And that's fine to ask him, of course. But whatever happened to stepping out by faith and seeing if he'll close the door or open the door? Isn't that a biblical principle? How about praying instead of, Lord, bring everything to me so I don't have to move off the couch? How about praying, Lord, I think this is a good thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it. If you don't want, shut the door right away if you don't want me to do this. What happened to that? Do you think God wants that kind of zeal? The Word talks about zeal. God loves zeal, like zeal for His house. Find something good to do. Find someone to help. Think about how easy it is to find someone that needs help. Whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, materially. Instead of sitting around thinking you'll be happy if you quote-unquote feed yourself, choose to reach out and feed someone else and watch the joy that comes your way. But part of being trapped in selfishness, and it really is a vicious cycle, isn't it? Kind of like isolationism I was thinking about. We isolate ourselves. And therefore we get more selfish, more in self-pity mode, etc. It's a vicious cycle. Part of being trapped in selfishness is being controlled by emotionalism. That includes like self-pity even regarding ourselves. This came up on Sunday as one of the weaknesses of our congregation overall. And when I think of emotionalism, I think of partiality and sentimentality, even towards self. This is not to say we shouldn't be emotional at times. That's a good and normal thing. Even Jesus was emotional. And how can we not get emotional about what he did for us on the cross? Emotions are, are wonderful in the right place. But emotionalism is like compromising the truth for sentimentality reasons. And that's what we have to be on guard for. Maybe even being partial to people we like or softening the truth for the sake of favoritism towards them. There's all, all kinds of subtle motivations we get, some sick, subtle motivations that don't put the truth first. Or for the sake of ourselves being liked and accepted by others, we want to soften the blow, we want to compromise the truth. But as we've been learning, how is that helping people? It's actually hurting them. Emotionalism and even a sentimental encouragement in today's world can lead people astray from the truth. As we heard last week, soldiers fight for the truth no matter what. They fight for the truth. They hold the Lord's banner up high, so to speak no matter what happens. And when emotionalism leads, the truth is always softened and God is often misrepresented. Think about that, misrepresenting God. As we begin with in today's message, did Jesus ever misrepresent the Father's truth? No way, right? Never did it. Never compromised it. Never softened it for sentimental reasons or subjective reasons. He was the Father's truth. He always gave the truth. And to fight for truth often means stirring up one another to love and good deeds. Don't we need that? That's the good encouragement, by the way. We're going to get to that in a minute. 
But don't we need that kind of encouragement, the reminders of what's good? Remember what is good and who gets to define it? Don't we need the reminders of what truly is good? Like loving good deeds, like uh, encouraging one another to stick to the truth of God's plan. Why do you think God tells us, commands us to gather together like this? Because we need it. We're weak. And he doesn't want us to be a sheep all alone in the field. You know, getting lost, getting isolationist, getting into self-pity mode, getting attacked by wolves without another sheep to pick them up, so to speak. It's quite a visual, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so we need this thing, that we need the, to focus on the good things and to encourage one another. On the board, one more time, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. When's the last time you sat home and considered how to stimulate somebody else to love and good deeds? Not forsaking assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What did we just read in Romans? The day is drawing near. It's getting closer and closer. The Lord is. Let's not waste time. We want no regrets in heaven. I heard something on the radio about some guy that died, some famous person that died. And he said, his last words to his family were, all the wasted time. All the wasted time. Like, what if it's us, our turn tomorrow or the next day or next month? Are we going to have to say that? Like, ugh. Why did I just sit on the couch and be in self-pity mode? My chance, my opportunity is over to glorify God. So, like, again, zeal, enthusiasm, encouragement. God's like, go for it. So there's worldly encouragement, and then there's godly encouragement that the Bible talks about. The world's version encourages people to make them feel better, regardless of whether someone's doing right or wrong. doesn't matter. It's almost like encourage at all costs. Don't let anyone be down, even if they're doing something ridiculous. That's kind of the world's perspective. In fact, it ignores truth in favor of sentimentality and therefore even enables people to continue in ungodly lifestyles. That's the worldly encouragement. We see it all over the place. There's like no standards. There's like almost like no values. In the world today, people are encouraged, quote-unquote, to do whatever makes them feel good or to believe in whatever God they want to believe in. Well, that's productive. Go, it's okay to believe in Satan if you want. You just do what makes you feel good. You know, that's not encouragement. <laughs> so anyway, it sounds nice on the surface, uh, the whole be tolerant thing in society, right? But we lie to people. We basically don't tell them the truth, so we lie to people. On the board, we've seen this a couple times, true encouragement. The lie is if someone's feelings get hurt, it cannot possibly be encouraging. But that's like a worldly, twisted perspective of encouragement. 
The truth is, the Word of God, no matter how offensive to human feelings, is always the best form of encouragement. The truth always works. It always heals in the end. It might hurt, but it always heals. Imagine if we soften the truth of the Word and we give someone a false picture of Jesus Christ, like a lot of churches today are doing. Is there anything worse than that? Almost giving them another Jesus and a false hope? But even believers do it sometimes in the name of sentimentality and emotionalism because we all follow the all too familiar ways of the world. Sometimes. We must remember only the truth can set people free and the truth hurts at times. Have you ever thanked someone for telling you the truth? It was probably painful. And it took days or weeks or months to go back to them and say, okay, thank you. I needed that. But it hurt. But they kind of saved you from something. Like a loving parent, you might need to see loved ones hear something painful because you know it's for their good and the only way they'll be set free. Do you have the courage to do that for them? And if you don't, can you pray to God for that courage? instead of taking the easy way out. Let me share with you a perspective that the Spirit gave me uh, last Thursday after listening to our lesson. Just think about the word encourage or encouragement. Encourage, break it up, encourage. It means to give courage or to inspire someone with courage. If that's true, what do we need or what does one need to uh, have courage for? If you're giving courage to someone, what do you need courage for? Isn't it to do the right thing? It's not to do the wrong thing, is it? We don't need any encouragement with that. Isn't what's difficult, in other words, to do the right thing? So that's like biblical encouragement. That's God's viewpoint of encouragement. That's what we've been reading in several scriptures, Sunday and today. The encouragement from God, what is it? To stand in truth. To impartially stick to the truth, no matter how we feel. The right things, the godly things take courage. And so we encourage one another to what? Things like love and good deeds, which if we're honest, don't come naturally to us. And some good, honest encouragement can go a long way. So we encourage others to do the right thing. If the unbeliever, we should encourage them to repent towards God. Encourage them. I know the truth hurts. I know you don't want to talk about being a sinner or being guilty. But i got to encourage you to do this thing because it's going to set you free. And it's your only hope. We encourage them that even though they've sinned against God, just like we have, that God offers them forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We encourage them to repent about their sin against God and to turn to Christ to be saved. The real Jesus, the true Jesus of the Bible calls people to this repentance. That's what we've seen. And let's be honest and encourage others to make that decision. Yeah, it might be a tough decision because you don't want to face yourself. You don't want to look in the mirror. But let's encourage others to make that decision to turn to Christ in that humble way. This is why we've come to realize for believers and unbelievers on the board 
The gospel is everything. It is the very hope of fallen mankind. I just had to write a tough email to a family member of mine who is trapped in some kind of depression uh, where it's all, about, it's all about self and it's all about um, my life sucks and it's all about um, pain and how hard it is to get old and things like that. But I had to write this plain, direct message that God's trying to get your attention. And this is the only way, this is the only thing that matters. This is the only way, your only way out, your only hope is to turn from what you've been doing or your opinion about God and turn to the true God. And only he can give you relief. So pray for that person if you would. But the gospel is everything. It's the only hope of fallen mankind. And we must share this good news with those we go out to. Only hope. It's your only hope. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear Jesus is the only way. They don't want to hear it. Well, guess what? If you love the Lord and you love them, you'll tell them even though they're going to maybe spit in your face. Maybe walk away from you. Maybe shun you. Whatever. Jesus went through a lot worse, didn't he? But if we want people to be saved, this world without hope, it's only by impartially sharing the truth with them that it's going to happen. Turn again to Romans 5, verse 1. Again, the gospel is everything. It's the very hope. It's the only hope of fallen mankind. And we mustn't be shy about sharing the God's honest truth. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. You too, unbeliever, can rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. To consider that we've all sinned against God and to consider that God sent his own son to die for us once for all and then for man to accuse God of not caring for him and not loving him is just an arrogant spit in the face. How, how does one prove his love for others more than by dying for them. But people don't want to hear it. Why? Because they're so self-focused. My life isn't the way I think it should be. And my solutions aren't working, so I'm even more bitter. And so they take it out on God. Arrogant man accuses God, spurning the very good news. This is the irony of it all. They sp- they're spurning the very good news that can save them, the very good news he's brought to them to be rescued. But that's the sinful nature of the flesh. That's just how corrupt it is. Another evidence of man being dead in his sins. And this came out on Sunday as arrogance in a nutshell. Question God and all of his authority. Do as Satan did. Undermine mercy, grace, and love. Lead others astray. Live for self. And all the while, posture yourself as righteous while bound in unrighteousness. You can see that picture with so many people walking around today. 
man is called to repent of this type of arrogance. And there are so many synonyms, too. That's why this, the gospel is getting simpler and simpler. There are so many synonyms in the Word of God where God is saying the same message. To repent, or to deny oneself, or to confess even. God's saying to man, you need to humble yourself before me. You're nothing, I'm everything. You're unrighteous, I'm righteous. You need to humble yourself before me. You need to stop believing you can save yourself. That's a big one. That yourself is righteous enough on its own to turn from that false belief and turn to Christ alone. So we have to tell people. It's the only hope. And this is why we've concluded that repentance is gracious and merciful. It's even a granted gift by God to the humble. On the board, think about it this way. Repentance is sweet to the ears of God. It's a surrender of someone's free will to His majesty, and it allows God to take over their lives by grace. God loves when someone repents. What's that scripture? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Joy. Repentance is sweet to God's ears. You might also say to somebody, you know, this whole time that you've been avoiding God, He's been waiting for you the whole time. This came up, I think, last week. He's been waiting at the door for you the whole time. He's not going to force you to turn around and come to Him, but He's literally been waiting right there for you. He wants you. That's a perspective as evangelists we have to adopt, but repentance, without repentance, it's like the prodigal son just continuing to go away from the Father. But our Father in Heaven is waiting to see people turn to Him in humility, and there's nothing sweeter in the Father's eyes. Well, there's no sound sweeter to His ears than repentance. It's a surrender of someone's free will, to His majesty, and it allows God to take over their lives by grace. And as the Spirit revealed to us on Sunday, this is the same old repentance that God has always required of man throughout all the ages. This theme has never changed. And this came up from Acts, 6, uh, Acts eleven eighteen. You don't have to go there. But this phrase came up, the repentance, from the Greek ten metanoian, the definite article, the, implies singleness to repentance. The apostles were talking about the repentance. You know, the repentance, the one that the, the prophets always preached about? That repentance that we all know about, that was granted to the Gentiles too. That's what they were saying. There's only one true repentance that leads to life. It's repenting towards God about your sinfulness. And in humility, turn into Christ as your only hope. He shows right up right there, right when you're there and ready. Repentance towards God for one's sinfulness against Him has always been the message that's been given throughout the ages to wake people up and bring them to faith in the Messiah, the Savior, as the only hope. So as we stick to the word of truth impartially, we're honest with people about what the Bible says about repentance. Let the chips fall where they may, guys. Tell the truth in grace and let the Spirit handle it. 
We, we want the immediate gratification of someone saying yes or someone being um, accepting our message. But in a way, it's a selfish desire as an evangelist even to have that as our goal of the conversation. It should be, I want to make sure this person understands the truth. And I'm willing to be shunned for it and I'm willing to let the Spirit do the work. So on the board, what is repentance? Repentance is often mentioned alongside of faith as an essential condition of conversion. We see that in Matthew 4.17, Mark 1.15, Acts 20.21, Hebrews 6.1. The relationship between repentance and faith, the sole instrument for justification, is so intimate, New Testament writers implied one when mentioning the other. Listen, either they implied one when mentioning the other, or they were remiss. And they were inaccurate in their gospel presentation. Are you willing to say that about Jesus? And then his apostles? That's recorded in the Word? Go to Matthew 4.17 again. Matthew 4.17. In other words, the message is not confusing. If someone's told to repent, right, and the word believe isn't used, well... There's, uh, there's something packed into that statement that the Holy Spirit lets people know. In other words, there's a decision to make. It's first of all that self is bad and insufficient and only Jesus is good, right? We need to repent and then, then what, right? If you repent, God's got to show you the way. How do I get out of this? Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hmm. Go to Acts 20, 21. Acts 20, 21. One of my favorite verses on this subject because it makes it really clear how Paul preached the gospel. And we don't really see this in the letters of Paul. We see it in his activity in his actively spreading the gospel in the book of Acts. Acts 20, 21, Paul is speaking, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're two sides of the same coin, don't forget. On the board, a person cannot turn from sin without turning to Christ and vice versa. It's hard to explain if we try to explain it too much, but it's a supernatural spiritual thing that these two things go together. And I truly believe this is uh, how it is and, and how I see it now. I hope you do too. Another way to put it might be this on the board. If a man is unwilling to repent towards God, he won't honestly turn to Christ in faith. He might do some kind of a religious thing by going to church and trying to earn his way, but he's not going to earnest, honestly turn to Christ and say, help me, Lord, I need a Savior, without a repentant attitude, a repentant heart about his sin against God. So this is the correct way to think about repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. It's very intimate, spiritual 
connection in the soul, these two things. How the Spirit does it, it's, it's, it's His work. It's a supernatural thing. And on the board, this came out on Sunday also, if God draws you to Himself, as in John 6.44, and His plan is to save you, then you will be receiving both sides of the gospel coin from God. You can count on it. Repentance and faith. You cannot receive only one side. God's going to convict the unbeliever in this way. You are a sinner. You need to repent and turn to Christ. That, that is something supernaturally that the Spirit does for the person who's humble. We saw more points of summary on Sunday regarding repentance. Jesus characterized his own ministry as calling sinners to repentance. He spoke clearly of the impending judgment of God as looming over those who refused to repent. We saw Luke 5.32 and Luke 3.13, uh, Luke 13, 3 and 5 rather. He clearly spoke of the impending judgment of God as looming over those who refused to repent. And we saw another wake-up call. Jesus included his call to repentance in the Great Commission itself. We always think of Matthew 28 when we think of the Great Commission, which is great, wonderful. But its sister is in Luke 24, 45 through 47. Why don't we turn there one more time, Luke 24, 45. And what amazes some is that even though Jesus included repentance in the Great Commission, he did not include the word believe or faith in this Great Commission, at least in this passage. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Notice, not just repentance is preached, but it's in his name in verse 47. So repentance was leading people to Christ. It wasn't just leaving them out in the desert with no hope. Repent and then find your way. No, it was in his name this was done. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And that's proclaimed in Jesus Christ's name to all the nations as the way to your forgiveness. So repentance was leading people to Christ for eternal life. And that's called faith, by the way. And you know what? The apostles obeyed the Lord. Crazy. What, what, they, what he just commanded in verse 47, the apostles obeyed. On the board, this came out on Sunday also. The apostles of Jesus Christ would never wish to dishonor their teacher. So repentance was as intimate to conversion in their minds as it was within their masters. Can you imagine Jesus telling you to do something directly and not just following it, trying to change it up a little? You know, they were like, they had proper fear of God. They're like, okay, Lord. And then that's what we see in the book of Acts. The next point, the disciples obeyed the Great Commission, including repentance, as Jesus told them to include it. Acts 2.38, Acts 3.19, Acts 17.30. 
we've seen these verses where the apostles say, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Or repent and return. And believing isn't even mentioned in these passages on the board. How so? If we think about it, repentance itself is an act of faith. They're choosing to obey that command, to repent. I'm not saying it replaces faith in Christ, believing, but in itself, it's an act of faith. If someone's going to obey that, they're believing the word of God. And who's standing right there when they're willing to repent? Jesus Christ as the solution, as the way to forgiveness. So again, these things are so intimately tied together, we can't fully explain them. They're so tightly knit. On the board, let's see here as I begin to close. Watering down the gospel by denying repentance as essential to conversion not only confuses people, but it undermines God's communication with his creatures regarding their need to be saved. There's a lot in that statement. There's a lot to think about in that statement. Are you willing to undermine God's communication with his creatures as he wants the message to go out? As repentance has been preached through all the ages, by the way, because if someone doesn't repent, they're not really going to turn to God to be saved. Look for a savior. If people don't know there's a judgment to come, why should they honestly turn to Christ from their heart? They might be religious to cover their butt just in case, but they're not going to honestly turn to Christ from the heart if they don't know about that there is a reason to repent, that there's a problem between you and God. Man is under the condemnation of sin and death, but there is hope, the great hope, just like we started with early this evening the savior of the world is the only hope and that's part of the message of the good news so as we close tonight let me just encourage you at this point tell the whole story my friends tell the whole story not being skewed by sentimentality or emotionalism but in love and honesty let's unveil the master plan of God without apologies from the tragic beginnings of man's story and how we inherited that sin to the great redemption plan of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I think of Stephen in the book of Acts. I don't know if it's Acts chapter 7 or 8, where he literally tells the whole story from the Garden of Eden in preaching the gospel to the religious Jews. And that should be like our... um, our desire to, to not miss anything, maybe, and to, to be um, open and honest with, let me tell you the whole story. I know this part stinks, but hold on a minute because there's a good ending coming, and you've got to go through repentance and sin and these things. And with the you know, enthusiasm and the zeal that God gives us, we can tell the whole story without apologizing and without, you know, what's the phrase, uh, undermining God's communication with his creatures let's tell the whole story not not be 
skewed or influenced by sentimentality or emotionalism, but in love and honesty. Let's unveil the master plan of God, because you know what? It's perfect. From the tragic beginnings of man's story to the great redemption plan of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to be willing as evangelists to tell the whole story, something contemporary Christianity is not willing to do. They prefer to tickle people's ears and deceive people by falsely widening the gate, and it's literally putting people under deception, even sometimes of being saved. So keep thinking the big picture. It's simple, it's whole, and it's honest. Amen? All right, let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your grace and your kindness and your patience with us and for patiently teaching us these things and giving us repetition and different perspectives so that we can have the whole story just set in our hearts, Father, as an honest communicator of your gospel. We ask that you help us spread the word as part of your great commission. In whatever way you've called each one of us, we ask that you give us the faith and the courage and the wisdom as we know you will if we step out in faith. And we know you're going to work behind the scenes also, Father. We thank you for having our back. And we thank you also for the privilege of suffering for Christ's name, if that's what it takes. Father, we ask that you give us more faith and courage as we go this evening. And we also, Father, pray for all those sick in our congregation that wish they could be here, that are struggling right now. We ask that you give them hope, courage, peace for what they're going through and to see the purpose for where you have them right now. All probably related to the Great Commission. Father, we ask all these things in the name of our precious Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.